I wanted to start tonight by paying tribute to Joseph Mason Proud, also known as Joe Lick Proud or Joe Lick Me Proud. Joe Proud, for those who don't know, and I think in our area there are a lot of people who don't know, was, it, it hurts to say was, was a legendary uh, tournament director, disc golf organizer, and course architect in Connecticut. And uh, we lost him this week. What I wanted to do was read some words from his friend Dave Murad. I didn't know Joe well. I only met him a couple of times, and I certainly don't have the right words to memorialize him. But I'd like to read this from Dave Murad. The disc golf and flying disc sport communities have sadly and unexpectedly lost one of their finest members in the affable and imitable Joseph Mason, Joe Proud. Joe embodied his passion for flying discs through his direct participation, involvement in various organizations and events, and as an avid flying disc collector. He positively affected and influenced a wide audience of peers and admirers by way of his friendly demeanor sheer enthusiasm, and unique charm. Those that were fortunate enough to know or meet him will sorely miss his commanding presence at a time when the sport of disc golf has seen a tremendous growth in popularity and notoriety. As a note of reverence, we highlight some of the accomplishments and capacities Joe has served in his time with us. He was vice president of the New England Flying Disc Association, or NEFA. He was the Connecticut State Coordinator for the PDGA. He was a member of a team that proposed and implemented the design for the disc golf course at Wickham Park and at Panthorn Park. He was captain of Team Wick, four championships with New England Team Challenge. He was tournament director of the New England Overall Flying Disc Championship. He was tournament director of the Greater Hartford Disc Golf Open since 2010, bringing the event to a prestigious A-tier status in 2012. He was the inventor of a hybrid flying disc sport called Zephyr played on a lacrosse field. He was a recipient of the Innova Course Steward Award, an inaugural inductee of the Connecticut Disc Golf Hall of Fame in 2020. Joe leaves behind his beloved and illustrious wife, Mary, his daughter, Sarah, his son, Joseph Jr., and his daughter-in-law, Theodora. May Joe and the innumerable memories created soar ever forward. We love you, Lick, in perpetuity. Huge loss. Huge, huge loss. He's a household name in disc golf in Connecticut, you know, in most of Massachusetts and most of New England, really. And it's a it's a huge loss. It was unexpected. And that entire community is reeling. So I grew up in Massachusetts and I didn't really start playing disc golf until I had already moved down to to Jersey, living out of Hoboken for a while. And when I was learning to play, I spent a lot of time at Greystone and Camp Gaw, but it wasn't until I went to Wickham for the first time when I was back at my parents' house that I was actually like wowed by a disc golf course. So, I mean, it's just, it's such a loss. I mean, and that's just one of the many accolades that I just heard. I mean, being a state coordinator, that is like such a thankless job and it's a difficult job and it's a job that somebody will only volunteer for if they are a, a really selfless individual that loves the sport of disc golf. So that's, I'm just, you know, I've I've never met him, but you can just tell by the amount of reverence you you hear about him online, but also just all the different roles that he filled that Jack just listed off. Laundry list. I mean, holy cow. You can just tell how much, you know, disc golf meant to him. 
and he made it a part of his life. So it's such a loss. I think people should know who he is. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, really, I, mm-hmm. everybody should know there's a guy like this. You know, we're regional, right? Not everybody is going to uh, affect the whole country or the whole seaboard with what they do, the ways they can reach. But this was a man who certainly reached this this far. You know, and anybody who went and played tournaments up in Panthorn or certainly at, at Wickham or <laughs> has even played Wickham or Panthorn. Panthorn doesn't get in without Joe Proud. Even just playing, you know, courses that are on his laundry list owes a debt of gratitude to the guy. I just wanted it paid. Very nice. Yeah, there's that um, one of the holes at Wickham. Forget exactly which hole it is, but it's um, top of a hill six. and you six, and you can see Hartford in the, yep. the you know the skyline in the <laughs> distance, and you're just like, wow. <laughs> that that was the first time I stepped on a tee pad, and I I, I was just like, wow, and I just yeah. sat on the bench for a just bit. Just a great looking <laughs> hole, and then you, then you look at the sign, and you're like, it's a 600 foot par three. Is par that three? right? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and now I understand that. Now I understand that it's 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 potentially doable with a perfect yeah, shot. Yeah, yeah. This, this was I, amateur. I've done it once. <laughs> Every other time I seem to throw it either all the way across the field into the woods or uh, most of the way to Hartford. Yep. Yeah, I've penetrated that, that left side of woods more times than I care to admit. <laughs> Anyways, but thank, thank you for that, Jack. My pleasure. Very least I could do. Valley Disc Golf Podcast. My name is Pat Keenan. I'm joined by Jack Bradley and Ryan Nelson tonight as we have a couple of newcomers. Uh, before we get to them, however, we need to do a quick check-in. Jack, how many holes are done at Saxon? Uh, zero holes, Pat. All right. Still not done. <laughs> uh, when when Jack told me he can get Joe and Evan on, I was torn because I can deal with Evan, but that Joe Benigno guy, no thank you. <laughs> no. Then he he eventually cleared it up, and I found out it was Joe and Evan from Wedge. That's when I realized that this was Jack's ultimate revenge for all the trick questions, because I now have to say Gesick and Keo, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, hope that I pronounced them correctly. It's not got easy. It. Nailed. I got them both. Got well, it. Joe, yours was kind of a cheat. I learned this with Ron Gallardi. Right. <laughs> Hard G. Yeah. Ex- well, because then what does Jack drive? If, right. if I know, I know. See? Yeah. I know. But I figured it out. So, but Evan, it's always a guess with this. <laughs> well, I mean, if you want to get technical, it's actually Kyo. Oh, if you geez. want to get the Irish way, but, uh, you know, Kyo is perfectly acceptable for me. It's a silent, you know, it's one of those, you know, GHs, silent GH. Got you. I don't know. All right. I got you. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I thought we could learn about you guys. Uh, which of you first learned about disc golf? I'm, let's see, 2003. Is my first, Evan? This is like my seventh year. Well, no, okay. I first, my daughter's eight, and I started playing like six months after she was born. So seven and a half years. Okay. So that means, Joe, you were first? I was first. You said 2003? How'd you discover disc golf? Um, I was visiting a friend down in North Carolina who lived in Asheville. And he's like, you know, and he's an old deadhead hippie friend of mine. And he's like, come play some disc golf, Joe. like, the hell's disc golf? He's like, you'll like it. I'm like, okay. So he gave me like, 
a clear champion spider, which I wish I still had. And we went into the woods and we played this course in Asheville. And being a good hippie at the time, I thought it was the greatest thing I ever did. But also being a good hippie at the time, I didn't think much of it afterwards. I just thought it was uh, some one-off in hippie Asheville. And I came back to New York and I was working in Armonk. And in around 2005, a guy I was working with, who was another younger hippie of some sort, <laughs> was like, hey, you know, I kind of for some reason mentioned this thing I did in Asheville, like disc golf. He's like, disc golf? There's a course right here in Kisco. I'm like, what? Because I hadn't played for like three, you know, since I tried it that one time. I just didn't think it existed. He's like, there's a course right here. I'm like, there is? Let's go play. And then from 2005, that was it. I just started playing, you know, locally at Kisco because I worked right down the street. Um, it was literally like eight minutes away. And I played at Cranberry a couple of times because I just looked online to see where a disc golf course was. And then I heard about a tournament that was happening at FDR. Now, again, I know nothing. I think I have three discs now. I show up because the, we- you know, the website said there was a tournament. I show up at the day of the tournament and it, at the, the house and all the discs are laid out. I'm like, whoa, I, I just had no idea. And I see like people everywhere throwing discs. Like I was throwing discs 50 feet, 100 feet. And then I see these people throwing discs like hundreds of feet. So I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> can, I, so can I play? And they're like, I'm standing with my three discs. Like, can I play today? And they're like, no. <laughs> you gotta, it's a tournament. You, know, you, gotta, you gotta do this. And then and then I spent another bunch of years just playing with some friends of mine, not like not keeping score, not just mm-hmm. really sucking at it for five years, just never getting any better at all. Until one day I'm walking around Kisco and I see some guys, and I guess they're playing it was a Tuesday dubs, mm-hmm. you know. And they're like, "Well, I'm like, what's this?" I said, "There's more than five people to play disc golf." They're like, "There's tons of us, maybe dozens." <laughs> 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 and then yeah, then I started playing some Tuesday. And then I started playing some league, and that's it. And it ruined. <laughs> Do you remember when that was that you, you've uh, Kisco Tuesday dubs? I, I would say 2005 was the first time I wasn't terrified to like play with other people. Be like, and I did suck still. I sucked for a long time. <laughs> but uh, that made it all better. All no, the, 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 the leagues turned everything around. Kind of made me, just as a person, everything threw me out. I got to meet all these people, and it just got better and better and better as all the years went on. Uh, so, Evan, you started. This is 2003. I had just dropped out of Syracuse, bumming around Manhattanville University, where my uh, my best friend from high school was going to school. And I had uh, you know hooked up with some of his friends. And one of the dudes, he's on uh, NASA now, Ned Eisenberg. Shout out to Ned. He's awesome. He said, dude, there's this thing and it's called disc golf and we should go play. And, you know, being, a, you know, a dropout, bumming around to college, uh, you know, there's nothing to do. Uh, that sounded pretty good. So um, we also headed up to Kisco. First thing I did was uh, try to catch one of his drives. And uh, luckily it was my left hand. Put a, you know, I had a bruise on my hand for about a month. <laughs> so I learned quickly not to do that. He's coachable. And I, you know, just had, you know, had my first round at Kisco, got totally lost because there was no signage and no tee pads and half the <laughs> baskets were broken and it seemed like you know a pretty okay thing to do but like joe like you know i didn't see myself doing it regularly you know so over the next you know six years or so i play like once or twice a year and it, you know it was kind of fun but i never i didn't really catch the bug until my daughter was born and then i was taking care of her and once a week my mom would watch her for the whole day 
and they're in Chappaqua, so that's right next to Kisco. So I need something to do for a whole day off. And uh, I started to make a weekly adventure out to Kisco by myself and play. I could probably get like three rounds in I was doing at a time because, you know, after a couple of weeks, you know how it gets. Those yeah. first, well, once, once it gets in you. <laughs> oh, no doubt. Uh, so, yeah, I was playing about 72 holes a week on one day. And um, eventually, I feel like the first person I ran into was Kimmelman. Naturally, I think that's, that's, that's often her yeah. name when it comes to the yeah, first person. Yeah, just a disc golfer, the, the first person you're likely to run into is Dave. I think I found one of his discs and called him, and then he chatted me up a bit and encouraged me to, you know, come out and come to FDR and check out doubles. And it just, you know, just started to to meet guys in the club. And then um, I decided to play. My first tournament was um, the Ice Bowl at Kisco that was – the tournament that that everybody decided like either the course should be destroyed or we should do something. <laughs> it was the mud bowl the mud bowl, the mud bowl. The mud that's, bowl. that's that was my first and that like honestly i have to say i don't think i've played in a more fun tournament since then <laughs> i mean i was in you know i was wreck and and i was just having an absolute blast you know i can see you know if anybody was taking taking it serious they might not have had so much fun at <laughs> that tournament but for me it was you know that really set the hook that was a turning point for a lot of things, yeah. but one of the most critical things, like disc golf wise, was I forced Daver to watch Steve Brinster yes. throw ankle deep in mud yes. Yes. from a tee pad. Yes. Yeah. This is what I remember the clearest. <laughs> Brinster was standing ankle deep in mud. In this mud. Is, this is prior in, to in, in, in an alleged tee pad. And uh, yeah. right, right there at, at lunch, it was Daver that announced we were going to redo <laughs> all the tee pads. <laughs> I think it was 13. That's the whole I remember him on, particularly, and just like yeah. ankle deep in mud. Just like, I was like, he did had a great shot. I mean, sure. <laughs> he mess him up at all. But. Brinster. <laughs> he shot lights out. Yeah, those are like the catalyzing moments, though, where you, you feel embarrassed for your course, and that's yeah. when <laughs> you finally find the initiative to, to do something about it. <laughs> Especially because for what Kisco was, I mean, it had the stigma of being a, you know, an old steady ed course. It had, you know, at least. Yeah, for someone who's just starting to learn about the game, it's like, oh, it's a little mystique. You know, this is a special place. It's old. It's been here forever, mm-hmm. you know. And, and then to see it kind of like be like that. But then also, I don't think I knew anything about better courses at the time. Like, mm-hmm. I, mean, I think maybe Cranberry was like the highest quality course I'd ever played at before like that notorious mud bowl. You know? Right. Do, do you think that any of those, um, you know, quirks about a course are charming? I think about the baskets at Buzzies. All right, so Kisco used to have those baskets. Yeah. Uh, actually, so Kisco's baskets were were patent pending. So there's a distinction mm. made between those and the, and the ones at Buzzies. I can't remember if one of the Kisco ones went to Buzzies. So, uh, so yeah, I do think that that's charming, and I think like having a Buzzies affords you the luxury of having a charming course. And you know, we thought about those baskets long and hard before we decided to replace them at Kisco. Mm-hmm. But we weren't feeling particularly luxurious with nothing but Kisco and FDR, which also did not have the best Innova baskets at, at the time. And, you know, ma- made a decision, a, a very conscious decision to take out something that was nostalgic in favor of something that had any chance on God's green earth of catching putts. Did you think about going with the older style new basket? 
Uh, Mach three is is uh, I would say would be the closest, and we did, and we petitioned DGA really long and really hard on the notion of hey, this is history, and uh, you know we'd love to put DGA targets in here, and you know would you you know please submit a bid that's competitive enough, you know that we can keep this course a DGA course, and they came in with by far the highest fucking bid. <laughs> 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 and now we're our sponsor, DGA. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, he lost this interval last week. Might as well keep going. <laughs> I'm um, gonna tear it all down. <laughs> Joe, which of the two would you consider your home course as of today? As of as of today, today I'm in I'm in Westport as of the moment. So <laughs> the closest course I've gotten to play on the regular is like Waveney. That's come a long way, and um, and Bridgeport. I mean, generally mm. when I was just before I left Harrison, where actually when I was still in Ridgefield, FDR was always my home course first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, FDR, Kisco, and then everyone else that we can get to on the weekends, you know, wherever else we just want to hit up just to change it up. Oh, yeah. Evan, uh, what's your home course, closest course? I mean, I am equidistant between Kisco and FDR. I would say I play I play FDR more, but no, Kisco will always be you know where it all started for me. One of the first times I, I remember meeting Joe... It was either shortly before or shortly after Wedge was officially incorporated. And Joe was working at a printer fulfillment house, print and mail. Is that, is that about right? Am I describing uh, it? It was, yeah, it was a it's like corporate production place. We did trade show meetings and every little bit of paper, you know, videos to print of everything, A to Z. Yep. Yeah. I still have my FDR Fool's Fest whole sponsorship, Hole 13, that, yes. that I believe you did. It's hanging on my wall right now. For the Beacon Glades. Nice, probably. <laughs> Do that for a couple of years. That was awesome. Well, that, well, that was yep. also when disc golf was a poor, poor sport. Mm. And everyone, you know, your treat. <laughs> so, yeah, oh, yeah your, your yeah. thing. <laughs> well, we, we wanted to do a thing for our whole sponsors. And, yeah, uh, yeah, it was awesome. That seemed to be a cool thing. But Joe had volunteered to print up scoreport cards and scorecards for us. And, oh, was that? No, you would also print it us like a big check. Like yeah, a we big did some check. big checks a couple of times. Yeah, <laughs> for uh, for food bank, so food, that if we banks, yeah. raised money for food bank, Joe printed us, you know, one of those big checks that you give to people <laughs> for photo ops. And I had gone to pick it up at the shop, and I got there and started talking to Joe. Joe's just got this smile on his face. He'd become so engaged in disc golf and was so happy to be doing stuff for disc golf and uh, we must have talked for over an hour Mm. in the shop that day and joe was just you know he was one of the first people who was telling me like we got to do more we got to get more more people and more courses and he said a thing to me that i will never forget i say it all the time when i when i talk about disc golf and community because i think there's a pretty quick recognition that if you're the type of person that disc golf bites into and keeps, then you're bound for a whole bunch of new friends. And I had said to one of my best friends pretty soon before that, a good friend of mine who was, who was trying to get me to meet other friends of his, and uh, I snapped him and said, I don't have time for the fucking friends that I already have. I don't need one <laughs> other new friend. This is before I started playing disc golf. <laughs> <laughs> And so, you know, I meet Joe and Joe is, is, is smitten with disc golf and he sees the community and he's like, I'm 40. Who makes new friends when they're 40? 
Mm. And I'm like, I guess us, us motherfuckers. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, you keep telling other people like, I still, I just, I'm just in Manhattan right now. I just been in the house and I met somebody here who's never heard of this guy. Right. Cool person. Excellent. And you just know, you know, certain personality types, or they just show up. Everyone I've brought who's never played disc golf before, I bring them to a course, and they meet other players. Every, every single person has this sensation, like, what is this group? Like, why are you like, you know, because you could show up and say, hey, if you see some people, you know, you can join in and play people with disc golf, or you can say hello, or if your disc golfer sees you and knows your disc golfer will say something to you. And it's a very unique in sports, I think. I've played other sports, biking. Nobody acts like this. They're weirdos. Because <laughs> like, anywhere I've been so far, I, I mean, I've, I've done, you know, what, I've done Arizona and Florida. Anytime I've met them, they've all been, you know, disc golfers so nice. far. Every place that I've moved to, I mean, it's mostly been in the Northeast, but when I moved down to PA, yeah. same experience. Mm-hmm. Florida, same experience. I feel like it's a lot like uh, like Jeep owners. You know, you're driving in your Wrangler <laughs> on the highway. Jeep owners. Yeah. Jeep. The hell is a Walking Jeep? around. Walking around waving at everybody. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like a secret club. Uh, so, Evan, you and Joe seems like you started actually getting into disc golf around the same time. When did this desire to add new courses come? I mean, after the Kisco project, probably, because you, you got to take care of the course you have before you build a new one, right? So, um, yeah. uh, after that was done, yeah, I was just, I was thirsting for another project, for sure. For the uninitiated, what is the Kisco project? Is that just new baskets and tee pads? It was, yeah, new baskets, but mainly um, the tee pads was the big undertaking. And signage. It really was a complete renovation of the course. Mm. New holes, new layouts. It also, yeah, did some new holes. Get The, the course had, uh, had sort of fiddled its way up to 21 holes and maybe had about 12 signs. Zero tee boxes, and some of the targets were held together by, I shit you not, yarn. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a hell of a project. <laughs> and so it was a hell of a project. It was quite an undertaking. And not only that, but we had to pitch the entire thing to the town, who hasn't always been the most receptive to the course. You know, I'll to my own horn. I feel like I put a presentation together that made that board feel proud of, of the course, mm. um, proud of its history. And, you know, I, I thought they should have. And, and by the time, you know, and it's, it, it's not like they were paying for it. I basically said, you have a course that was installed by the man who's considered to be the father of disc golf. You don't know what disc golf is, but here's what it's turned into. And, you know, again, it's like it's videos. It's a stack of PDGA you know, uh, disc golfer magazine. And, you know, this is what disc golf looks like in the rest of the country that, you know, this is what your disc golf course looks like. And we, you know, we're going to bring in 12, 15 grand and lots of labor and completely renovate your disc golf course. And, and they were under no obligation to obviously keep it there. Could still throw it out anytime they wanted. Dave Coates has a lot of records about how it went in and why, but he has the names of like some cops on the Kisco police department that helped Ed put the course in help dig holes and put baskets in they paid for the course no i I think steady paid for the course wow i don't know that for a fact but well back then didn't the course just basically consists of baskets yeah it's just the baskets patent pending that means they were that new that they they didn't even have the patent for disc golf yeah he didn't he had applied for the patent but he didn't have it (laughs) most of those baskets still have you know i mean they're they're all privately owned now but Mm -hmm. Most of the mine mine has a sticker on the back that says patent pending. That's awesome. Right. Do you want to hear an interesting piece of disc golf trivia? 
about the uh, the damn straight. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I guess it's just something I I heard during the the Dave Dunapace interview with Nate Sexton. And I just did not know this. Maybe you guys do. Apparently, if you wanted to purchase DGA baskets from Steady Ed, he had to approve your course. So he would not sell you 18 baskets unless he actually had an opportunity to determine whether your course was worthy. I greatly so, wish all manufacturers would enact that right now. <laughs> well, then you can blame Innova because when they came out with the disc catcher, it was the first set of baskets you could buy and not have to go through study <laughs> to improve your course. So you can blame Innova for that. Advances in mediocrity. <laughs> Do I remember Jack being asked like when we're – just trying to figure out what kind of pads we want to be put in there. And I remember somebody saying, you know, do you want these to be five-year pads or 20-year pads? And Jack's like, 20-year pads. <laughs> these are, we're doing this right and we're doing it. One right time. <laughs> that one time. Was <laughs> I think it was like at the height of the, the hipster area, too, that we did it. I mean, I felt like because of the way the course is laid out, too, you couldn't drive to all the holes necessarily. Everything was like more handcrafted yep. like, for like the kind of course it was, too. It's like, yeah, it definitely was like just slapping on pads. I mean, everything really had to be finagled. Yeah, those those were difficult builds. I mean, every build was a difficult build, except for I don't know, hole one. So our biggest mistake was the the original hole eighteen. Oh my god! We used all the backfill. Yeah, there's like twenty like massive boulders <laughs> that we decided to take out so we can go down six inches. Even though I know I remember John coming in like, yeah, I, I really just need you to dig six inches. You didn't need to. <laughs> <laughs> These giant boulders. In fact, this is much worse. <laughs> uh, I should say, if you haven't gleaned it already, Joe and Evan were ever present in those teapad builds. It sure sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and lots of guys were. I don't mm-hmm. want to short anybody. You know, a lot of people came out. And we're thinking, I mean, a lot of them was like, you know, designing on the fly too. Yep. Figure out how are we going to lay this out? How are we going to do this here? There was a lot of talent, a lot of talent out there, especially, uh, you know, <laughs> one of the ones I'm actually most proud of is, is 11. It's 11, which Keo and I built solo. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful one. Yeah. And I was like, you know, if this thing sinks, it's only you and me, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's holding up pretty well. It is. It's holding up great. Yeah. Every time I see it, I'm like, yeah, me and Keo. <laughs> I mean, the, the worst effects that have happened at the course is from vandalism I mean, mm-hmm. on the pads. Yeah. The structure themselves is everything's held up. There's a couple that need help. Um, a little sink on the uh, Pinball Alley. On Pinball know. Alley. And that is happening because we put the item four in Frozen. Right. And there's <laughs> nine. There's a, Basically, everything has sunk uniformly except for one paver, which I know is like stuck on a rock that we should have blasted. We were at, we were out of time. It was like late in November. Oh. It was the last build because it was the hardest build. And that's how John and I like to roll. <laughs> Let's get the easy ones out of the way. But it was the last build. There's a lot of wood in it, and it took a lot of fill, and the fill was frozen, so guys were chipping away at it oh, with pickaxes and then carrying it over in, you know, whatever. You know, we, so we had the item four in a huge pile, but, yeah, it was Some all... of it's still there, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and, it, and it shall it ever be. Uh, I don't see that going anywhere. <laughs> You've mentioned uh, John a couple times. Who's John? John Garb. So okay. John, John Garb was our kind of like lead engineer. engineer. Yep. <laughs> yep. And he will be, uh, he, he remains our lead engineer. So go- going into uh, FDR this spring, we're going to do all paver tees for the 17 holes that don't have them yet. And then we're going to do nine turf tees in the front. And, and John will again be lead engineer. 
In fact, Ryan Korsakowski has also signed on. Oh, Ryan. For, back, yep. Right. So uh, that's that's the band back together, bro. Oh, that's it there, too. I got to say this. That Ryan was one of the first people that really got me into the fold. Because I was like walking around the course thinking like, boy, these guys must be so cool. And they're so smart. And they design <laughs> courses. And boy, maybe one day, if I'm lucky, I can like, you know, give a suggestion about a hole. <laughs> he kind of ran to Ryan and went over this. He's like, just show up. <laughs> like, just, just. Turns out it's just us assholes. <laughs> Is there room for another course at FDR? I think a small one. I think a niner. Hmm. We're talking about it. In the pool area? So Bill's been asking. They've been saying pretty much yeah, and they've been like saying where, and then Bill goes and he looks where he thinks they mean, and then he sort of shows it back to them, and they're like, no, 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 that's not where. Uh, <laughs> but I, I believe we've yet to actually have Bill and wh- whoever's making decisions there at the park on the same piece of land at the same time. I think we're close to getting that, and I think as soon as we do, we'll, we'll probably have an approved. It, Bill's looking to build a beginner-friendly nine that has an environmental learning component to it. So the T signs would include information about the whole, but they'd also include information about environmental impact and species and watershed and, and stuff like that. Cool. Uh, and that's what I think is w- will also pop up at FDR. That's why I ask these goofy-ass questions. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have, at least in Easton, PA, we don't have a beginner-friendly course when we were talking to Jamin last week, he he talked about how upstate he's designing within an ecosystem of courses because they have so much damn land up there that you don't. Not every course has to be a championship course, so he's designed some smaller ones. And in Easton, we do, we don't really have that. We we've got Hackett Park is my local course, and it's you know the first three holes are chip and putt, but then you know hole mm. four is like a five hundred and fifty foot bomber downhill and you can't even see the basket so it's not very beginner friendly the reason i'm curious about all this is because you know i would love to get something smaller in that's more beginner friendly if we were to work in any sort of curriculum into our eastern school systems physical education program they'd have nowhere to go and that's a problem i think that with fdr if you play the short layout it's relatively beginner friendly would you say so in westchester i don't think so no Guys, Joe, uh, you believe no. the yellow layout is beginner friendly? Um, no. I mean, it depends how beginner. If it was me, beginner, like I'm just trying to think my beginner days before I, yeah, when I first started playing FDR, we didn't have the traditional yellow layout, so it was more beginner friendly. I mean, I'd be hard pressed to feel confident playing a round of yellow. <laughs> how about that? I'd feel good. I'd have a nice time out there. The back nine, I think, is probably the most scary. Mm. Yeah, that's or, true. Or that's a good point. Like, this is just, I can't throw that far. They're like, I'm going to throw it five times before I get to the green. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know, you can't. Beginners in 500 foot holes don't. Hole seven is also. Yeah. I was just, I was going to say. Like, you throw, you throw it into the swamp or throw it into the river. It's just. Yeah, a little, that's little true. Those are big gaps for beginners. Yep. yep. So we have it there. I mean, wasn't, didn't we have flags now in all the short positions at FDR? Yes, we do. So that's a big. That's like, that's a pace race course. Soon there's going to be T's. Right. So. So the answer is yes. So there will be, a, and only in the front. You don't need more than nine holes. That's where beginners should be playing anyway. Like, right, right. As someone who's going to play that front, I like the idea of a beginner nine someplace else. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Because even, even Kisco, the short course, is not so beginner friendly. I mean, just challenge-wise, technically-wise. It's tough. You got to be playing for a bit before you can like 
Oh, I just played around the disc golf. Beginner, yeah. it kicks my ass every time I go out there. I don't think I've ever <laughs> had a good game. Have, have you guys ever been out to New Jersey and played Harry Dunham Park? Mm-mm. I have not. It's close to Greystone Woods. It's about, I'd say, maybe 50 minutes west of Manhattan into Jersey on 78. And it's a uh, Matt LaCourt designed, and it's it's a nine hole with a short and a long pad, and it's it just plays around. The park is relatively small, and there's a walking path that goes around the whole thing, and there's like a playground in the middle and some pavilions, and it's you know very conducive to a kid playing on the playground, seeing people throw discs around, getting interested, and playing nine holes, you know. But I, I feel like those are kind of tough to come by courses like that, and they're valuable. But they're not really the priority of people like us. Right. <laughs> Obviously, you see whole families out playing now. You know, the gambit of, I mean, beyond novice playing. People <laughs> like have absolutely no idea about rate of play or flow. They're just out there because you know about it. They have a disc. And they're playing. Right. So that, that's also a separate course yeah. in the same area. And, and so when, when I say a beginner-friendly course, by the end of that first day, second time, you know, mom and kids play they start to score right mm-hmm. you know they start to get some pars maybe get a bird and that's what i mean when i when i say beginner friendly layout i think there's got to be a beginner friendly that's not necessarily also like beginner 15 year old friendly that somebody who's necessarily going to develop into a, a great player there's got to be sure beginner course that are people who are 40 and 50 who are pretty much that's as good as they're going to get if they play a full round get some exercise and play that's good enough like i said like our Remember, like the church group, the Taiwanese church group of absolutely that were playing. They loved to. They would have loved to play. Nothing was within their zone, and they would never advance past that. They would never get past the beginner tees. That that would be at their limit, but it would be there for them for all those type of folks that are never going to progress to big holes. You don't think an eighty-year-old Asian lady was going to start bombing? <laughs> She's going to try. She's going to try real hard. Uh, what What I will say is that as is that eighty-year-old lady is walking an 8,000 foot course to play 18 holes. And that's uh, that's too far. <laughs> <laughs> you guys want to play 18 holes? Yep. Yep. Well, let's, let's try to get it. through nine. Um, <laughs> you know who you've got on the call here, Pat. <laughs> uh, so yeah, stick with the front nine for now. We'll see how far we go. Uh, Evan, what hole would you like to play first? Three? Uh, Jack, what score would you or anybody, but uh, Jack, what score would get you a 900 round on yellow at FDR and also on white, in your opinion? Oh, boy. Uh, a 900 round. I expect that uh, it's probably par plus one on yellow and maybe par plus three on white. Really? That close? I don't know. Hmm. Joe? I don't know. I, a 900 round on yellow? I would, I would have thought at least like three or three to five under par. Because uh, I think a five under par there, I'm trying to remember any tournament plays. I think 400 is only, it's like 860, 880 was like three under. Par is eight something, right? I don't know. I think it has to be at least three to five under for 900 plus round. What do you think of them? Oh, I have no idea. I don't know how these things are calculated. Ryan? I could only tell you what 900 gets you at Hackett Park these days. <laughs> I haven't played FDR in a while. <laughs> I figured, and you probably haven't played it since the color swap and everything. So yeah, I, you have, but I no will come up this summer and I cannot wait. <laughs> All right. Pat, what's the answer? 
Pat, do you happen yeah. to know? <laughs> no. Oh, Jesus. No. What a He's tease crowdsourcing you are. his answers. Come on. Right. <laughs> he just writes down he writes down his questions that he wants to know the answer to. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then he has a podcast to try and get it. Absolutely. Um, who picked that first? Uh, Evan, what, what hole? Are we playing teams here? What's the deal? Uh, well, you got to get to a trivia question. We got to get to it. Yeah, right, right. What, what, uh, yeah, I got ahead of myself. I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, we'll pick a hole then, Jack. Uh, I'll pick a hole. Uh, give me, uh, give me seven. What if there was an option on disc golf scene where you could sign up for multiple divisions at a time and you could prioritize them based on preference? Like, I want to play this, but if I can't, if it's full, I'll play this. I heard a lot of people complaining about having to do a second sign in. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, it hurts my head to think about this. It hurts. It hurts. <laughs> it hurts my head to roll over like the theories that get put out there from the heads of people that have no idea what it takes to run an event. What if? What? What if disc golf scene could could prioritize it? First choice, second choice. I guess that's good. So the, let, let, let me take it from the user standpoint, right? I'm going to register yeah. for a tournament. Mm-hmm. I'd like to play MA40, but I'd settle for. M1. Mm. Somehow, if MA40 isn't available, it automatically you know runs me down to M1. I, I guess as a user, I like it. I got a better chance of getting yeah. into the tournament than if I was division specific. And then, yeah, the only reason this is important is because tournaments are selling out in a matter of minutes these days. Seconds, <laughs> you know, yeah. seconds. So I, I think it's a it's a good. It would be a good fix for the current situation that we we are all experiencing. It would be a band-aid on one issue. Yeah. Those yes. people who said yes. I had to sign yes. up a second time. All right, uh Ryan, what hole? Let's go to did we did Evan say one first or two? No, we started with three. Oh three okay. seven are out. I'll take hole one. It is time for a Discap tag update. Discap tag update. Discap tag update. Uh well, I was requested specifically to do a discap tag update. I'm glad you picked this number. <laughs> Let me go pull it up. I wonder why. <laughs> All right. Our top 10 for Discap. Number 10, Dave Searle. That's a name I've heard before. I think Kenji said he's a newer player. Does anybody here know him? No. All right. Number nine, Jeff Wachowski. Oh, yeah. Number nine. Woo! Yay. <laughs> number, eight. <laughs> number eight, Josh Weinstock. All these people have one round played. Uh, numbers, I'll tell you when, if that changes. Number seven, Tyler Caldaza. Uh, Tyler Calzada. I'll edit that. Woo! Back to my, what I said. <laughs> I'm um, reserving my claps for at least the top three. Number six, Josh Wynn. Number five, Greg Kurtz. Number four, with two rounds played, Hudson Valley Disc Golf Zone, Jamin Hume. I know him. I know him. <laughs> hey, my friend. Number three tag with two rounds played, Tim Giardini. Woo! I know him too. Number two, three rounds played, Joe Jaskolka, the two tag holder. And the number one tag with three rounds played as well, plus uh, he lost the tag, two Kenjis, so really four matches. Oh, four rounds, yeah. Yeah, four rounds. Jason Lasasso. Way to go, Jason. Nice. And oh, I would like to point this out. I'm glad that Jason did. Uh, Kenji, who came in with the four tag, now has the 59 tag. Oh, yeah. That's important <laughs> to know. Uh, more important, 
Pat has the 39 tag, so that's you know. All right. All right. Uh, and this has been your Discap tag update. That was hole one. Joe, you haven't picked the hole yet, have you? Uh, any hole I like? Uh, well, you you can't do one, three, or seven. Well, let's do hole 12. Uh, we're just sticking on the front nine, Come so on, you can only do one. Yeah. Well, then we do that hole nine, then. All right. Joe, who is the next million-dollar disc golfer? Oh, it's got to be, I want to say Hamburg. How do you say his name again? Heimberg. Heimberg. But, you know, it depends. Cause is it by sponsorship or is it by, like, self-generation? Because I know, like, Brody Smith has been, like, just because of his channels and everything he's doing, like, is he generating without sponsorship nearly a million bucks in, like, YouTube videos and whatnot? I would say, like, announced. Announced. Announced? Yeah. I'd say the contract wise. I would say, I mean, somebody young, somebody really young and whippy, because he's crushing. I mean, everything I see, he just keeps crushing and crushing and going to crush some more. Here, here's the problem with Heimberg, though. He's sponsored by Innova, so unless he changes his sponsorship, he's not going to get a million bucks. They prefer to give a million people a buck. Somebody <laughs> <laughs> wants to steal, steal him because what he just got. I mean, Macbeth did leave in this guy's got a lot of money. For I don't know. I still, I'm still blown away. I don't know where all that money is coming from. I know that this golf's popular, but yeah, nobody knows that. Where they get <laughs> I, I'm sure. I'm sure that Discraft executives are rolling all night in their sleep, wondering where that money's coming from. <laughs> <laughs> and watching, watching the first tournament too. He's like, oh, our golden boy not doing so hard. Well, he just won the memorial, I guess. Yeah. So that's good. He'll be fine. Off the yeah, he'll, he'll be, be all right. Fine. <laughs> I think it might be Eagle. Oh, yeah. That that would be my guess. He's very young. He's like 23, 24. Then he's just young. He's not very young anymore. <laughs> just clarifying. <laughs> well, I'd say, uh, yeah, relatively young. It could be that the next million dollar disc golfer might be 17, you know? That's true. Just off our radar. That's true. I would say, though, in terms of raw skill or Raw talent, Eagle's elbow bends in ways that not many others can. But I also think that Dismania takes their pro sponsorship very seriously. And they they show that by not honestly sponsoring too many players. You know, you think about who's Dismania sponsored on tour right now. It's basically Simon, very warranted, right? Kyle Klein, who I think they were very prescient in picking up when he was a rookie and then he wins the amateur, you know, world championship. And now he's on tour and frequently a top finisher. And then, you know, Eagle, those, those are their pros other than, you know, obviously a little bit more a European focus, but it seems to me like they're prioritizing their talent. And I think that they'll make sure that their money is well spent there. So I, I think that he's probably the next pro that's going to get the, the check in my opinion. Any thoughts, Evan? If I was going merit-based, I would go with Paige Pierce, probably. Yeah, I agree with that. And she's, you know, pound for the pound, probably the best golfer out there. Certainly the best swing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes sense to me. It's equitable. She's already there in a place where the talent is valued and paid. I think that's what I would have said. If they have any money left. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which, of course, they didn't in the first place. <laughs> Good question, Pat. Yeah. Who will be the next person promised a million dollars by this <laughs> company? <laughs> All right. Uh, Jack, why don't you pick another hole? I will choose eight. Hole eight. What would you like to talk about? Oh, crap. <laughs> I would kind of like to talk about the ridiculous. 
ridiculous bullshit that's happening around tournament registration fails. I think it's toxic. I think that somehow we've fallen into this entitled place of like somehow I deserve to be in a tournament. And there's so much talk about why didn't you make your tournament more suitable for me to be in it when the whole story is scarcity. And we, you know, were tournaments selling out quickly a year ago? Yeah, they were. Our tournaments, you know, were tournaments on this trajectory? Yes. But, you know, tournaments are sort of unnaturally in the state that they are. And the way golfers levy the, this vitriol against the volunteers who are running events, it really has me sickened. I want to talk about that. Joe, your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's again, we're, careful what you wish for, right? It's everything we wished for, but at the same time, well, now we're, we're overrun. <laughs> and everyone, everyone, everyone always had that, that tight family club feeling. I belong to these things. But, you know, it used to be when most of those people were volunteering for the event as well. Like you'd have most of the people who want to be in the event volunteering for the event at the same time. I think that's another thing too is like pushing the volunteers, and I don't know if that helps change <laughs> the registration events. You just got too many people, not enough horses. Sacks of woods. There you go. You know, more, more, more. What else can you say? Well, I I think the obvious thing is just raise the price. Oh, and... does that really though? Because like really, what's I mean, what's the is it is it ten dollars, twenty dollars? What's going to dissuade? And what poor people, elitist disc golfers, can't afford to play this? Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you give it to the poor. <laughs> I would just say, what's what's what would be that price point that would dissuade you know a yeah. bulk of people? I'll tell you, a lot of people were complaining about sponsoring a hole. Hmm. I sponsor a hole to to get an early spot in a tournament. Maybe that's it. Or early registration sponsor holes. Yeah, but then that's still it is though. Like what people do that already. Like Classic stuff though. For real, like what are you supposed to do? You know, it's, is that really fair though? It's like you don't have the cash, you really can't play. Hmm. Yeah. What is this Canadian hockey? <laughs> well, it's also COVID year too. People, you know, maybe it's part of. I mean, we have the increased players, but it's also people are losing their minds to get out and do something too right now. Right. This is a thing that I've I've been banging on this pot for a month, and that's that these events don't have competition. And it's not just that they don't have competition from other disc golf events. They don't have competition from your niece's birthday party. Right. They don't have competition from your bowling league, <laughs> and they don't have the sort of competition from your wife that's says, oh, you think you're going to go play disc golf three times this month? She's like, please go. Go, yeah. please. Get out. Of get, get out. I'll sponsor a whole. I'll sponsor the yeah. whole goddamn course. <laughs> yeah. Now it, it almost feels like a privilege to be able to play in a tournament. And in some ways, that kind of brings about the question of having to earn your right to play in the tournament. And how do you do that? I think that one way to do that is monetarily. If you can sponsor a hole, you deserve early access. But I also think that volunteers should be given priority. I think underserved divisions that we're trying to promote. Women juniors. Yeah, yeah. women juniors should get priority. I also like the idea of the ratings-based early reg. So like, I like the idea of, for MPO, you know, the 970 cutoff. Yep interesting for me. So I've been over 970 and my latest ratings bump, I should say lack of bump went down to 965. And I'm like, crap, I have to start playing to get better again. That's actually like the first time I've ever felt that, you know? Yeah. Right. So, so I think that that's nice. So the, this is a thing that Craig Cutler 
brought up that I liked a lot, which was, what's the purpose of the tournament? Mm-hmm. And the answer is going to be different every tournament. But, you know, I'm specifically talking about this dumpster fire about the New Jersey State Championships. There are people on there in, you know, MA2 and MA3 that wish they could have gotten in. But uh, Adam Harris set the tournament up for ratings based and it's on a timetable. So the first rating level that opens up is 970 or something like that. And then another week, you know, 950 and up can register and then 930, whatever it is. And the answer with that particular tournament is what's the tournament for? It's to crown a New Jersey state champion. So how critical is it that the MA3 guy gets into that? (laughs) You know, your 865 MA3 guy, how critical is it that he played? And I say, in that particular event, not that critical at all, because we're trying to crown a New Jersey state champion, and that's not that guy. So I buy into the ratings-based entry schedule for that. That makes sense to me. People hate on the sponsorship, and I can see you saying, okay, you're going to make disc golf only be for the people who can afford it. But that's uh-huh. not what that exemption is for. Higher tier events, for, you know, from B tier on up, has a fundraising requirement. And, you know, that's on TDs and, and clubs, organizers, to find that money. And so I see no problem with letting in sponsors first because there's a sponsorship requirement for the purse. There's a sponsorship requirement for the amateur side as well. You're expected to, it's been a while since I looked at the requirements. 125% 125%, yeah, sure, right. So how do you get that? Part of it has to be raising cash for you to supplement player packs. It's on the tournament director to raise funds. Why can't the tournament director award sponsors with spots to meet that requirement? Getting back to what Craig Cutler said, and this is what is not currently in the DNA of most tournaments. What's the purpose of the tournament? And I think if you start with that and you make a mission statement for the tournament ahead of registration, you say, this tournament is, you know, to bring competition opportunities to amateurs in the eastern Pennsylvania area, right? Then you can figure out how to allocate spots. Then you can figure out how many spots you're going to give to your volunteers, how you're going to award some of the early spots. and maybe even disincentivize the player that the tournament is not for. And so if it's an event for AMS, you can (laughs) disincentivize it by not offering cash payouts for any divisions. And then probably pros are going to lay off that registration. And, you know, you're going to get a field of people for whom the tournament was made to serve. But I think that goes a, a long way. What Craig Cutler is talking about there, I don't know if he intended to say it, but I take it to mean the tournament should have a mission statement. And I think when you start there, you solve a lot of problems. And you answer answer those questions that come up in forums immediately with your mission statement rather than having to sort of backpedal. I mean, I think it's really interesting. I can't think of a single tournament that has an objective like that. I think other than ice bowls, right, and events that are charity-oriented, I can't think of anything that's explicit like that. Where they've actually established it, right. Women's global event, right? That's clear. But you're right. I think that that also brings into a consideration of where, <laughs> which I know it's probably easy to to change in PDGA, but like if you're trying to crown the New Jersey state champion, do they have to be from New Jersey? <laughs> you know, like, isn't that something to think about? <laughs> that's in the mission statement. Right. 
So in which case, you might be offering invitations to, say, the top 25 pros in New Jersey, and then you open it up further. Right. I love the idea, and I, I don't think that anybody's really talking about that. So that's really interesting, because I think that could solve a lot of problems. I, I will say that in PA, I think we definitely have more tournaments than you guys in Westchester, just because we yeah. have a lot more, honestly, tournament directors. Yeah, I think it's a more mature scene overall. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. But we have a, a couple of tournament directors now that are that are catering to AMs. There's um uh, this guy, Brian Bockington, down here. He runs, I'm talking like a tournament every weekend. And I would say 80% of his tournaments are, are for AMs. And he's clear about the fact that his tournaments are for AMs. And he only gets about five pros to show up for it. But he's developing a following and he's serving a community that is underserved from a competitive perspective. So I, I think that's interesting. I've never even thought about it that way. I asked a question on the Wedge page a week or so ago, asking like, what other sports or games do you participate in for money or other prizes? It got huge response. 60 plus people chimed in with, you know, what else they did, it, it, you know, including things like poker, ball, golf, bowling, billiards, darts. And I was sort of like leaning this way to begin with, but like nothing works like disc golf. Nothing works anything like this. Closest thing is some am golf tournaments, but I know I know a handful of players who've played in traditional golf tournaments, but that's it. Other I, I know tons of people who play golf, but none who play in tournaments. And, you know, I know people who play in softball leagues and bowling leagues and dart leagues and all these other things. But like none of them are for your entry fee times 125 percent in player packs. Nothing works like this. And maybe competitive play for disc golf will end up in the hands of professional disc golf, like legit professional disc golfers. Maybe tournaments aren't for absolutely everybody. Mm. I don't think they will be. I, you know, with the groundswell that we're seeing, I think you're going to see many, many, many more recreational players of disc golf who are going to be like recreational bowlers, and they're going to bowl four times a year, and they're going to disc golf four times a year. I just think we're about to hit an explosion of dubs. Yeah, sure. Like small, informal type things like that, where it doesn't require as much, uh, you know, prep. The San Diego Aces has something like six or seven doubles a week, including an invitation only doubles, which is for basically, I don't know, like nine twenty and up doubles last time I checked. But yeah, like how many tournament directors are there going to be? You know, we're talking about our problem is a lack of volunteers to be tournament directors. How many do you think we're going to make, you know, that that make it so that the Fool's Fest may be an unapproachable event for a majority of golfers. The thing could get big enough that it's a four-day pro event or a three-day pro event. I don't mean to single out Wedge, but it is possible that there will never be enough TDs to handle you know, demand for these tournaments. And then you know, if you go into ratings and like I was saying, mission statement, like what's your tournament for, right? Mm-hmm. If your tournament is for competing 
you know, to be the, the best golfer on that day? Does the 880 guy need to be in that competition, need, need to be in that hunt? I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I think when you, when you think about um, how there aren't a lot of sports that are similar, what I think about is when I used to, um, I used to run long distance. I used to do a couple half marathons. That's something where you you know you do spend I'd say fifty to a hundred bucks for t-shirt basically the right to run on the streets right yep <laughs> in a t-shirt that a you t-shirt. might you might wear right so like five k's ten k's that that was yep. one of the first things that I came up with that I thought was anything like it you know where like yep. a couple hundred people show up to run this ten k and you shell out twenty five bucks and you get a t-shirt back. Yep. yeah right yep. and. There has to be a staff organizing that. There has to have been permitting. There has to have been registration. There have to be volunteers, you know, handing out cups of water and pointing you the right way and ringing cowbells or whatever it is they do. They're, they're not charging $75 fees and giving you a backpack and some sneakers. <laughs> uh, like, no. what, what the fuck are we doing? <laughs> yeah. What What are the events that, because honestly, there's so many now in, in you have to really want to get into one to be able to play in one. But there's so many more informal things that are going on around the, uh, you know, on the weekends with singles and dubs and things like that. And I feel like there should be more unsanctioned tournaments available to AMs to, to fill that need. You don't always have to go to a PDGA event. It's an issue because for some clubs and some parks, you know, you have to be insured through the PDGA to, to be able to run an event. Right. You know, so you're you're kind of stuck there. And I know you can get exceptions to run relatively unsanctioned events or si- things that feel like unsanctioned events like snowballs, you know, with, with exceptions and, and going through that process with the, with the PDGA, but you know, not everything needs to be the fool's fest. That's right. You know? And and it's tough. But that's what I think we're getting more of in PA. It's like you know, Brian's running events and, and we've got Mike Solt, you know, Mr. Disc Golf running events and we've got, you know, just a lot more and, and Bria's right, you know, over the border in New Jersey. So I feel like we've gotten a lot more supply from a tournament perspective. And to me, it's like, well, now I'm choosing what do I want to play in? You right. know? Yep. That's the answer to scarcity. Yep. Yep. More supply. <laughs> Hopefully, you know, capitalism kicks in and guys can make some money doing it and that's how the the need is met because socialism isn't working to meet the needs of <laughs> disc golf it really isn't you know and when you start thinking that way ryan you, you start thinking about less sanctioned events but you know those are events probably that better serve the needs of your club they have to be more gratifying to the volunteers that are doing it and so i mean on that end of it it makes me wonder you know what's going to incentivize clubs you know to run b tiers and a tiers because yep you you start to ratings base it and frankly you're going to start drawing better professionals from further away to the exclusion of lower rated locals Locals. and that makes sense to me once you've slapped a mission statement on the on the (laughs) tournament once you've said what's what's this tournament about but we don't yeah. do that, and so it's ha- it's haphazard. It's all over the place. This tournament is about providing a great entry level experience, value proposition for the recreational player, and also finding out who's the best. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, what bums me out is that right now with all of the the registration headaches and the scarcity, 
it's making people say things like, well, you know, I don't want to grow the sport. And that's right. just that's just yeah. so bad on yep. so many levels, you know, and it's it's a problem that I think the PDGA should be more Can aware I just say of. the PDGA isn't doing shit about it. I it, <laughs> The PDGA is is doing less than anybody else. They you know, they they came out with a thing maybe a week ago saying uh Oh, you know, with with the increased need for events, here's a link to how to run a PDGA event. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. I don't get and there's other things too, like the the holding spots for women, I think has we I talked about this before, but I, I think it has an adverse effect. So you hold spots for women and there's twelve spots sitting there for women who who haven't registered yet, and now you have the twelve top men on the wait list hoping to god that no women register right there, there's just horrible incentive structure right there right <laughs> so it's bad but the, the pdga is doing nothing to support their cause they they are so reliant <laughs> upon clubs and the benevolent tournament directors and volunteers and what they're doing to support them is laughable mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Aye. Aye, aye. i think they might do something I'm not generally like a super down on the PDGA guy. Yeah, I think they either. do good work, but I don't know if they recognize this problem, they sure aren't showing it. And I'm going to be mad until they do. Like they, <laughs> they, they need to support tournament directors in new ways. Mm-hmm. They need to, I think you're on this verge of reducing supply of tournament directors because of they, they already do a hard job. Now they're getting abused for doing it in a way that, this guy doesn't like, or that guy doesn't like, or this is how they should have done it. As if somebody pays them to do this, mm-hmm. <laughs> or as if they're profiting from doing this. So yep. I'm not sure that you're not on the cusp of reducing supply at, at a time where supply needs to be increased. We need more tournament directors, not less. But you know, throwing shit at tournament directors while they're trying to do a good thing is not the way to get more tournament directors. It's exactly the way to get less. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of stunning you know, newer players, first tournament, second tournament, that guy's going to pipe up and maybe he's going to get stomped down. But I see it coming from seasoned veteran players mm-hmm. who, who should know better. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm seeing as well. It's very disappointing. Pat, you got any more holes? Yeah, you got anything fun, Pat? Anything, uh, yeah. anything fun that me and Ryan <laughs> like can do? Death, death spiral right this now. It's horrible. <laughs> Disc golf sadness. Yeah. Let me take a look. <laughs> I will say it's having the adverse effect for me, though. It's making me more, I don't know, more of an evangelist, and I want to do more now. Yeah, so I see people becoming motivated to do more, do more writer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I don't I don't know. Pat, is hole five available? Name the most random Major League Baseball player from your youth. Uh, Nomar Garcia Parra. That's a good one. That's that's a name that comes to my mind. He could be a pitcher for the Red Sox. Uh, shortstop. <laughs> there you go. Shows you how much I know. I'm going to get so much shit for that. <laughs> uh, Jack, what do you got? Catfish Hunter. All right. Pitcher. Hell yeah. <laughs> Hall of Fame pitcher. <laughs> I knew it. The name that got me thinking of this was uh, Kent Herbeck. Kent Herbeck played for the Twins back in the 80s with Kirby Puckett. Does uh, does Dustin Pedroia still play for the Red Sox? He was always my favorite player. I think he might have just retired, if not this year recently. What hole would you like to play, Jack? Uh, Let me get hole two, Pat. Sounds good. We'll do uh, disc or no disc titles. 
titles. Uh, who's going first? Ryan will go first. Yes, sir. Ryan, this is the Battle of West Allen Chestertown. <laughs> oh, man. West what? Chester. <laughs> Allen Town. <laughs> Ryan, what name is given to any teacher in Japan, not necessarily in martial arts? Uh, sensei. Is the Sensei a disc? It is. It's in the active line of the Dismania Plastic. December 5th, 2019. Yeah, baby. Hmm. Thank you, uh, Karate Kid, the reboot. <laughs> uh, Jack, what was the name of the internet browser released by Netscape in 1994? Oh, crap. Wow. What was the name of the internet browser released by Netscape in 1994? Ooh, I think I know it. Oh, man, I'm going to get a steal out of this. God damn it. It wasn't just Netscape? <laughs> is it Safari? Ryan. It's not. Is it Navigator? Oh, yeah. Is the Navigator a disc? You know, it doesn't sound like it's in any of the manufacturer's vocabulary. There's a compass. I'm going to say yes. Full turn discs. Ooh. August 13th, 2016. <laughs> Ryan, Scott Carpenter, Pete Conrad, and Sally Ride are members of what profession's Hall of Fame? Uh, astronauts. Is the astronaut a disc? <laughs> Spike Heisers all day. <laughs> um, no. Disc Mania, February 22nd, 2021. What? Oh, Brandon, you got smoked what? on that's, that one. <laughs> that's such bullshit. <laughs> it's five nothing. Here you go. <laughs> Annihilated. What word comes from the old French for a soldier sent ahead to clear the way? Today, it refers to the first settlers of a region. What word comes from the old French for a soldier sent ahead to clear the way? Today, it refers to the first settlers of a region. Pioneer? Mm. Is the pioneer a disc? Yes. Latitude 64, oh, November yeah. 23rd, yep. 2018. Yep. Yep. On the board. Nice. Ryan. Mm. In 2007, Nickelback sang, I'm going to trade this life for fortune and fame. I'd even cut my hair and change my name. To be what? Nickelback. Nickelback. Oh, my God. Going back in the memory banks here. In 2007, Nickelback sang, I'm going to trade this life for fortune and fame. I'd even cut my hair and change my name. To be what? I am i can't think of a single Nickelback song. I just see his hair. That's all I see. <laughs> I have no idea why. I give up. Pass. Jack, you got this one? No. Jack? No, Nickelback is in the wrong pocket. <laughs> Rockstar. Is it Rockstar? Is the Rockstar a disc? No way. <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, let's see. V Rockstar. <laughs> rock three star. There's a, there's a star rock. There's a star rock. <laughs> I'll use one of my tricks. Uh, yes. <laughs> that was less than confident. Disc Mania, February 22nd, 2021. Oh, another one. Oh, wow. I was trying to draw out final answer. Final answer? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pat, we know your tricks. <laughs> uh, this is Jack's... Reg that was a steal, right? Yeah. So this is Jack's regular question, down 5-4 now. Mm. Though now it means one who serves. In medieval Japan, what name was used for a property holder who received rent from serfs? Though now it means one who serves. In medieval Japan, what name was used for a property holder who received rents from serfs? Uh, it's Samurai. Is the Samurai a disc? <laughs> yes. Gateway Discs, April 22nd, 2012. Oh my God. Did he just take the lead? 6-5. Oh, 
If it was wrong, I was going to go with Shogun, because that could have been the only other answer. <laughs> All right. What you got? In 1192, Gotoba was emperor when Yoritomo received what title as military dictator? In 1192, Gotoba was emperor when Yoritomo received what title as military dictator? 1192, military dictator. Emperor, so probably a, a dynasty of some sort. What would the military leader be called in a Chinese dynasty? <laughs> I thought you were going to say in a Chinese diner. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Shogun. I got nothing. Is the Shogun a disc? Are you are you serious? Yes. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I was dying for you not to say it. <laughs> For some reason, I was thinking China. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. Um, uh, uh, no? Discmania, February 22nd, 2021. 2021. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. Uh, brutal. All right. Well, we're tied at least. <laughs> so is this for the win? For the win? For the win, yes. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I knew the Shogun was a disc. Damn it. Jack, final question. Double indecency. And Skytanic are episodes of what show about the title spy whose code name is Duchess? Archer. Oh, damn it! <laughs> is the Archer a disc? Yes. Uh, uh. Discraft. Uh, December 7th, 2016. Well, I guess we know where all the talent lies in East Allen, Chestertown. You know, it seems like it's a pretty pretty fair team. West Allen, you know, yeah, yeah West. I agree. Contributions across the yeah. final score eight to six. Yeah. Uh, nice that, win. That's nice how it could could have gone the other way. Could have gone the other way. <laughs> All right, uh, you guys got anything before we hit, we head out for the night? No, thank you for uh, thank you for a little bit of fun at the end there. I was really like down on <laughs> disc golf. For, I know for part of this. That yeah, was a little depressing, yeah. but um, well, thank you guys for, for coming. Thanks to Evan and Joe. Woo! And sweet up Hudson Valley and sweet up Joseph Mason. Thank you, Pat. Have a good one. It sounds as if oh, he's in. He's in. Joe, Joe has Hello? arrived. <laughs> Um, You're in. I am here. I've made it. Yes. Hey. What's up, brother? Digital universe. Hello, brothers. I'm actually remote in Manhattan right now. Ooh. That's exciting. Like, I just got a two and a half hour tattoo. Oh, of what? Yeah. Uh, it's like a, there's a statue of Hercules in the Cypriot wing of the Metropolitan Museum. So I had like his bust put on the inside of my bicep. This guy, he's wearing like a, a bear skin. That's awesome. Pretty cool, actually. Hurt like the dickens. <laughs> I got the needle today, too. Ooh, but not. <laughs> but I only yeah, let you him. Yeah, you got the big vax, yeah? I only let him put it in once. <laughs> Are you, is that the one? It is only one? Yes, you, yeah, yes. Yeah, oh, you got John. the single? I got the JJ. On the, uh, I got one more. I got my second one on April. Right on. Do you have any there. concerns? Either either way, like Joe, are you like why? Why did I get two? And Jack, are you like maybe I need a second one? You know, no, no. I mean, is there any of that? This was the f the first one that came up, so I took it, and you know, the, there are there there appear to be uh, pluses and and minuses to both, but they're pretty much insignificant. 
So I think I was just like a three weeks behind the signal dose when I signed up. So they were still um, they only uh, had the Moderna, I think, in mm-hmm. our area. Yeah, both, I mean, it, both reduce hospitalizations by like. Yeah, I mean, the point is you don't die, right? That's, that's, right. that's it. Right. That's all you right. want. <laughs> I'm not going to the hospital, and I'm not going to die. Yep. Yep. Check. Sign me up. Due to COVID. Due yeah. to COVID. <laughs> Due to COVID. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. A bus will still kill you. No, it, I I drove away today thinking like, okay, I've eliminated like one of the ten thousand things that's going to kill me. <laughs> yeah. It really is more for other people. Like I so said, we're. Care, my partner, our co-caretaking, her mom's got Alzheimer's, so it's like it's really just her. I mean, because she wasn't, she just just got her first dose, so it was really keeping her from getting yeah killed. I wasn't yep. worried. I was sure I got it the first day. <laughs> it was like renounced. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I got COVID. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, welcome to the Hudson Valley Disc Golf Podcast. My name is Pat Keenan. 